so yesterday, <clears throat> Sue and I went to the zoo to uh, help our grandson, Nico, celebrate his fourth birthday. That birthday is actually today, but um, we celebrated it yesterday because he wanted to go to the zoo. So we had Zach and Sam and their kids and Evan and Michaela and their kids, and then Sue and I, we all met at the zoo, and uh, we're kind of walking around, and uh, we came to, after looking at the snakes, said, Nico, where do you want to go next? Lions. I want to see the lions. Well, if you've ever been to the Kansas City Zoo, you know, the, the, the Africa section where, where the lions are, uh, are kind of like, uh, they're kind of a little bit separate from the rest of the zoo. You kind of It's about a five-minute walk. That's why they have a tram that will take you down there. And so some of the people decided to ride the tram down there, but I was pushing Luciana in a, in a stroller, so I just went ahead and walked down there. So we're kind of going along there. And so in a, in a, in a way, we kind of got separated, not completely, but you know, we weren't the one group anymore since some had walked ahead and some rode the tram. So uh, walking along, after we arrived in Africa, I walked along the path, okay, because at the zoo you walk along the path, right? And I got sidetracked uh, at the uh, exotic bird section, uh, specifically this uh, vulture that was giving me the stink eye when I, when I walked by. And so I kind of gave him the stink eye back. And, and so then I'm kind of reading about this, this vulture. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, less than a minute maybe. But then when I looked up, uh, the only people from our group that I could see were uh, Nico and Vossen. And uh, the, the path kind of went up around a bend, and then there, there was a fork in the path. But uh, I couldn't see anyone else or hear anyone else. So I got, I got a little concerned there, so I'm kind of speeding up a little bit with Luciana, pushing her in the stroller. And uh, we come up around there, and uh, there's Nico and Vossen where, where the road forks, or where the path forks. One of them was holding a map. And so I start going one way on the fork, and Vossen, no, no, Gramps, we go this way. And you know he's holding the, the, the map. So at that point, I'm faced with a decision. Am I going to entrust my life to uh, a, a couple, of, a four-year-old and a five-year-old uh, who, who are reading a map that I couldn't even read, uh, and, uh, or am I going to go with my, my instincts? And so anyway, uh, I did follow them, and, and it's just right up around the bend, and then it wasn't very far, but you could see that where everyone else was, and then, of course, the, the lions were up there as well. So we ended up, we did not get lost. We ended up not getting lost. Last week, we uh, talked a little bit about the principle of the path in week two of our series, The Beginner's Guide to Predicting Your Future. I kind of want to elaborate a little bit on that. Uh, but we defined the principle of the path this way. If you were here, then you know that. If not, we'll get you up to speed here. The principle of the path is this. Direction determines destination. Direction determines destination. And this, this isn't just a geographical reality. This is true financially. It's true professionally. It's true relationally. It's true morally. It's true in every area of your lives. And it's especially true spiritually. The direction that you're currently heading will ultimately determine where you end up, your, your, your destination. But just because you're on a path doesn't mean you're going to reach your intended destination. Right? Because if I would have taken that right fork, I still would have been on a path, but I would not have ended up at my intended destination. So as we pick up from where we left off last week talking about the principle of the path, I want to begin by giving you four things that are true about getting lost. Oh, this thing's kind of messing up. I don't know if I'm... Anyway, four things that are true about getting lost. The first one probably goes without saying, but people don't get lost on purpose. Right? In fact, like I said last week, I mean, it's, 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 hard, it's pretty difficult to get lost 
in this day and age with GPS and whether and the, the uh, uh, maps uh, apps that we have on our phones, smartphones, and so forth. So, first reality about lostness, the art of getting lost: people don't get lost on purpose. Second, people get lost before they realize they're lost. Right? People get lost when you get lost. It's like all of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm lost. Now, if you knew when you got lost, if you knew where you got lost, then you could just go back there and straighten it out. But that isn't always the case because we're lost before we realize that we're lost, right? Then the third thing, and you ladies will love this, men tend to go faster when we're lost. That's true. I don't know why. Maybe it's that male, you know, ego, testosterone, you know, we'll never admit we're lost, so we speed up. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going, right? Uh, So, and then the fourth one, and this kind of goes without saying uh, as well, we wind up where the road we're on ends up. You always wind up where the road you're on ends up. Now, here's the thing though. What's obvious to us in our driving is not as obvious in our living. But just like physical paths and physical highways and physical roads have predictable outcomes, so also do the pathways that we take in life have predictable outcomes. We all start out with some sort of plan or at least an idea of where we want to go or where we want to be. Again, this isn't just true geographically when we're taking a trip. This is true in our daily lives as well. For example, if I were to ask you uh, if you had any plans financially, okay, uh, what, what, your, what you want your finances to look like in two years, five years, ten years, whatever, then you would probably have an answer for that, right? You say, in so many years, I'd like to be debt-free and have this much, this much money saved up. Uh, what about professionally or in your career? How do you hope things will be professionally or with your job or career in the future? You know, some might say, well, two years from now, I, I hope to be a supervisor, or five years from now, I hope to own my own business or, or whatever. What about relationally? What about relationally? If you're not married, I'm sure you've got some goals, maybe not specific, but you've got an idea uh, of, of what your, your, your wedding day, your marriage is going to look like, right? And if you are married, I'm sure you've got plans for what you want your marriage and family to look like. It might not be real specific, it might be vague, but you have an idea of what you want that to look like. So, if I were to ask you about any of these things, what you intend, how you intend for life to go in any of these different areas, you would probably have an answer for that, right? Because all of us, again, to some extent, we're planners. So we have, it, it might be a vague, but we have a, a, an idea of what we want the future to look like. The challenge is, the challenge is oftentimes there's a disconnect between what we intend and the direction that we choose. A disconnect between our intention and our destination. By this time next year, we're going to be out of debt. Right? Uh, five years from now, I should be a supervisor or a manager making X amount of dollars. Ten years from now, we'll have our house paid off. Uh, by the time the kids are all grown up, we hope to be, and then you, you, you fill in the blank, all right? But as we all know, life happens. And sometimes life has a way of messing up our plans, doesn't it? No matter how well intended, sometimes life has a way of interrupting our plans. And according to the principle of the path, right? According to the principle of the path, direction determines destination. Which means, now watch this, which means not only does direction determine destination, direction also always trumps intention. Direction always trumps intention. All right, so say you're a single girl, 
And like many single girls, you hope to get married someday and start a family. And, and again, you might not have that completely dialed in, but you got an idea in your mind of what your happily ever after is going to look like, how you hope to meet a young man who loves Jesus like you, who shares many of the same convictions and values that you do, right? But you haven't met him yet. So in the meantime, you're basically going to go out with anyone who asks you out if they're cute and drive a nice car, right? Or let's say you're married. And, and you really want to have a good family life and be involved in your kids' lives. But in the meantime, you start picking up some overtime at work to try and get ahead financially to meet those financial goals that you have. And before you know it, it's, it's not uncommon for you to work a 50, maybe sometimes a 60-hour week. And then after a while, you realize you don't even know when your kid's next recital or ball game is because you haven't been around that much. Or how about this one? One day we're going to be debt-free. We're going to take that Dave Ramsey seminar, and we're going to do those steps, and we're going to get out of debt, right? But come on, Pastor, this is, this is North America. Debt, is that, that's the American way, right? So you really can't expect us to be totally debt-free, can you? Or how about this one? Yeah, I want my kids raised in the church, absolutely. I want my kids to have a good spiritual foundation. So that's why we're going to start taking them to church as soon as things settle down a little bit and life isn't quite as hectic. Then we're going to start getting back in church. All right. Once I meet the right person, I'll change. Once I make more money, I'll be more generous. When I get older and decide to settle down, then I'll start getting serious with God. When life slows down, we'll start getting back and going to church again. And it always gets real quiet about this place in the message. And somebody's thinking, how did he know? How did he know? Because somebody always knows. In fact, somebody's probably already tried to talk to you about this, and you refuse to listen to them. See, here's the thing. You might be unique. We're all created uniquely different. You might be unique, but your story's not. And your path isn't either. And your destination isn't either. In fact, a guy who the Bible calls the wisest man who ever lived actually talked about this very thing almost 3,000 years ago. His name was Solomon. And Solomon was, uh, Solomon was a fascinating study. See, here's the thing about Solomon. While he was academically and textbook wise, towards the end of his life, he began to ignore much of his own wisdom, which led to his life not ending so well. But before he got sidetracked by marrying women from all these surrounding pagan nations, and that's for another sermon, by the way. And by the way, it, it wasn't marrying all the women that led to him backsliding. It was when he began to worship their gods that he began to backslide, because that's exactly what he did. But before Solomon started dabbling in idolatry and backsliding, when he still had a clear mind and an open and honest heart before the Lord, he did a lot of thinking and he did a lot of writing, which was good. Because when Solomon was dialed in with God, he wrote some of the most amazing things. And when you read through some of these things he wrote, it becomes obvious why he's called the wisest man who ever lived. And Solomon had some very profound and insightful things to say. And some of these things are recorded for us in the Old Testament books, one of them called Proverbs. And in this particular proverb, Solomon is apparently holding audience with some young men, which wasn't un un uncommon in that in the, at that time in history and in that culture. 
rabbis and other spiritual leaders at times would, would, would gather young men together and, 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 and speak uh, uh, wisdom and insight and instruction into their lives during those formidable years. Now, very seldom would a king do it, but every now and then, on, if, the, if, the, if the young boys were lucky, they would get an audience with the king, and he would sit down and speak into their lives, and that's apparently what happened here. All right? So, in this particular proverb or, or story, uh, there, there are two characters mentioned. Uh, one is a naive young man, and the other is a seductive married woman. Now, ladies, please understand that the point of the story is not that all married women or women in general are seducers. That, that's, not what he's trying, that's not what he's trying to say. Nor is his point that all young men are naive, although that's probably more true than the other one. But anyway... Uh, the point is Solomon, what he's doing here, he's setting his audience up, he's setting these young men up for a very important truth that he's wanting to tell them. And that is that things in life that what we might view as a distraction or a detour or a diversion, those are actually directions with an unintended destination. See, this is why it's not enough to have good intentions. Good intentions count for nothing. Your direction determines your destiny every single time in every single arena of life. So let's read the story here. This is the proverb in Proverbs 7. We'll pick up at verse 6. At the window of my house. So he, the narrator here, he's got this vantage point. Again, we don't know if this was a true story. It very well could have been. It's very descript. So I, I get the impression that, that he actually saw this play out one day. So he says, at the window of my house. So he's got this great vantage point up high. He says, I look down through the lattice. In other words, he's kind of, they don't see him, but he's peeking down, and he can see all this play out. Verse 7, I saw among the simple, naive, I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. One translation says lacked judgment. And dear ones, there are two ways that we get judgment. You get judgment through time, and you get judgment through experience. So, so here's this kid, this young man, who hasn't had a lot of time, hasn't had a lot of experience, which is why he's so naive. In other words, this explains why your parents got so much smarter the older you got. Seriously. The more sunrises and sunsets that you live through, the more experience and the better your ju your, the judgment that you have. So he continues in verse 8. He was going down the street, talking about this naive young man, he was going down the street near her corner. Her corner. See, he knew where she lived because all the guys knew where she lived. Walking along in the, now watch this next word, direction of her house. See, that, that implies a path. You're going a certain way. The naive young man's walking along in the direction of her house. Verse 9, <coughs> excuse me, at twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Now, at this point, if this story had a soundtrack, if this was made into a movie, right, there would be two different types of music playing because there's two different perspectives of what's taking place here. There's the perspective of the naive young man and there's the perspective of the narrator, okay? The music the naive young man here is playing in the background would probably be this right here. Okay, the music that the narrator hears is, is this right here.
He continues, verse 10. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is, and, and this description Solomon gives of this woman is not very flattering to say the least. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every, in other words, this gal got around. She got around. Verse 13, she took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said, now this next, I got to warn you, this next statement's a little bit risque, a little PG-13, so brace yourself. Today I fulfilled my vows and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. I don't know about you, but those fellowship offerings already do it for me. What about you, right? What's she talking about here? Well, she's talking about some kind of religious ceremony that, that either it's a pagan, it might have been a Jewish one, we don't know for sure. But here's, here's basically what she's saying. She said, man, I've been to church, I worship, I confessed my sins, I emptied my sin bucket, and now it's time to go out and fill it up again. That's what she's saying there, all right? I'm good to go for another week, is what she's saying. In the next verse, she starts getting real personal. So I came out to meet you. You. Right. I looked for you and have found you. You see that? I came out to meet you. And, and the naive young man's thinking, me? She, she's, looking, she's looking for me. He's thinking, man, I'm special. And the narrator's saying, no, you're stupid. <laughs> but his, his heart's racing, his hormones are kicking in, and he's thinking, man, I'm one in a million. And the narrator's like, no, lover boy, you're one of a million. This young man has no idea what's about to happen to him. He's clueless. Like when Yogi Berra's second grade teacher asked him if he knew anything, his reply was, man, I don't even suspect nothing. This young, naive man, he didn't even suspect nothing. Verse 16, I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. Here she's kind of setting the stage mentally of the physical experience that this naive young man is anticipating. And if the visual sense weren't enough, she also appeals to his sense of smell. Verse 17, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. See, this is by design too, because it is a fact that our sense of smell is the greatest trigger of our memory. Did you know that? Your sense of smell is the greatest trigger of your memory. She wants him to remember this experience for future reference. It's called job security. She continues, come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. She's basically telling this young man, hey, this isn't only going to feel good. It's going to look good. It's going to smell good. It's going to be a magical experience for you. And then to put his mind at ease, Right? To put his mind, she assures him that even though she's married, her husband's gone on an extended business trip. Verse 19, my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money. In today's culture, that would be like he took his uh, Visa Platinum card with him. And he won't be home till full moon. In other words, he's going to be, in other words, we got plenty of time. We got plenty of time. You don't need to worry about getting caught, which kind of sends this message here. There's no consequence if no one finds out, right? You can do the wrong thing and things can still turn out okay. I can take the wrong turn, take the wrong fork in the road, and still end up where I want to go, right? 
No. No, it doesn't work that way. The narrator continues. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, verse 22, all at once he followed her like an, axe going, like an ox going to the slaughter. Oh, what, what are you talking about, Solomon? What are you talking about? I, I'm about to have the time of my life. This isn't like an ox going to the slaughter. Solomon's like, hold on, lover boy, I'm not even done yet. He says, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Oh, come on, Solomon, quit being such a drama king here. No one's getting hurt. Her husband doesn't even love her anymore. No, come on, this is just a slight little diversion from the path, right? Everything's going to be good here. Solomon continues, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. This isn't going to cost it. No, 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 no. The only thing that's going to cost me, Solomon, is a little bit of money. Yeah, I might have to pay a little bit of money. But no, this, no, no, no. You're, you're, you're wrong, Solomon. After setting the stage, the narrator, Solomon, shifts gears a little bit. And he starts talking about the story of a naive young man. And he begins to address the young boys sitting around him at that point. And he says this, now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways, see that? Or stray into her, here's our word, paths. Wait, what do you mean, ways, paths? This wasn't a path, Solomon. This this was just a slight detour. This this isn't the direction I'm always going to go. I'm I'm just kind of going over here for just just a, a short time. Verse 26, many. Everyone say that with me, would you? Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. I want to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever been to see a counselor. But let me tell you why counselors seem so smart to us. I mean, aside from the fact that they they have that diploma up there with all those letters in front of or behind their name, right? You know why counselors can come across so smart and insightful to us? I'll tell you why. It's not because they're so smart. It's because we're so predictable. It is. It's because we're so predictable. What do you do when you go see a counselor? You basically tell them your story, right? And when they listen to your story, you know, they they, they can see the path that brought you to this place where you currently find yourself and why you're in there in their office talking to them, right? You start telling your story, you know, this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened, and the counselor's sitting over there at their desk with a little pad and pencil, and they're writing things down, and you think they're taking notes on your story, and they're not. You know what they're doing? They're making up their shopping list when they stop at Hen House on the way home. Because they already know what they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you what you don't want to hear. Because, see, you went there because you want them to fix it. Remember he said last week, no, this, isn't, this can't be fixed. This can't be fixed. This takes a change of direction, right? There is no fix for that kind of thing. There's only a change of direction. So here's Solomon's point. What this young man thought was a minor detour was actually a pathway, a pathway that led somewhere. He didn't know where it was leading him, just like we don't realize it when we're heading down the wrong way, usually till it's too late. Now watch closely this next statement in verse 27. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. 
Now, please note, it doesn't say her house is on the highway. It says her house is a highway. In other words, her house and everything it represents is taking you somewhere. Some of us have some houses that are highways that have nothing to do with anything sexual or illicit or even illegal. Diversions, listen, listen, listen to me here. Detours don't always lead to damaging or destructive things, but detours always lead us down a different path, don't they? In our narrative, this woman's house was not just a diversion. It wasn't just a pastime. It was a pathway that was taking this young man somewhere. And while it's true that we're all created uniquely different, what's not different are all of our experiences and the paths that we walk and the destinations that we arrive at. You know, the truth is we're actually more predictable than we want to admit. When it comes to the paths that we walk and the places where we end up, sorry, we, re we really are pretty predictable. That's why you probably have a friend who's seen the path that you're walking down and and has tried to predict your future for you, tried to call you out on it. Because see, they, like Solomon, they're up in there. They've got a better vantage point. They're peeking through the lattice, and they can take a look at your life, and they can see that the path that you're walking down is not going to end well for you. All right? And they tried to call you out on it, and they sent you some texts. First, they tried to talk to you, and you shut them down. Then they send you some texts. Maybe they even sent you a card but you refuse to listen to them. See, th th this is why, and this is, this is important, listen to me here. This is why anytime someone close to us or someone who loves us and cares about us calls us out on something, instead of getting mad, instead of bowing up and pushing back, maybe we should pay attention to the tension. That might be the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention. And see, and the reason they keep bringing this up to you, the reason they keep writing you notes, the reason they keep sending you texts about that thing is because they don't want, and I don't want, and your Heavenly Father doesn't want, and ultimately you don't want. At the end of the day, you don't want to be a victim of the disconnect between your intention and your direction. Because ultimately, it's not your intention, it's your direction that determines your destination. And look, this isn't, this isn't about taking away all your fun. I think sometimes we view that, oh, God just doesn't want me to have any fun. Seriously? The, 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 look, God's not trying to take something away. He's trying to give you something. God's trying to give you something, right? He's trying to give you a full life, not a less fun life, but a more fun life. The Bible calls it abundant life. So to do that, I want to give you some homework. This is what I want you to do. Thank you. I want you to go home and hopefully maybe right after church sometime this afternoon, try to do it sometime before too many days go by. I want you to uh, go home and I want you to, uh, to find a box, all right? And if your house is like our house, uh, you probably have a box that has an arrow and the word prime on it. <laughs> and if you don't have one, come by our house. We got a bunch of them and I'll give you one, all right? So here's what I want you to do. First, I want you to get an empty box, all right? Second, I want you to, to collect all the fun that you've had over the course of your life, all those what you called diversions, distractions that you thought were so much fun. I want you to take all those things and put them in that box, okay? Just, just dump them all in that box, all, those, all the fun things from your past, okay? Third thing, 
After dumping all the fun things from your past in there, I want you to take all the money that you wasted in the pursuit of those fun things, and I want you to take all that money and dump it in that box as well, okay? So you got all the fun from your past, and then you got all the money that you wasted in the past. I want you to put those things in the box, okay? After you put those two things in the box, what I want you to do, I want you to set the box on a table, I want you to pull up a chair, and I want you to stare at that box, okay? I'm serious, just, just stare at the box for a couple of minutes. After a couple of minutes, after staring at all the fun from your past and all the money you wasted in your past, I want you to do this. I want you to think about a time in your life where you actually did something to help someone else, right? Maybe it was a sacrifice. Maybe it was you gave someone some money. Maybe you raked your neighbor's leaves. Maybe you took someone to the doctor. Some, 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 some time in your life where you, you really wanted to do something else, but you felt like God was wanting you to do this and reach out to someone, all right? And, and may, maybe you didn't have a lot of financial margin, but still, you went ahead and by faith helped someone out, all right? And I want you to remember that moment. Not long ago, Sue and I experienced this. We, we were made aware of a, of a need in the community, a financial need in the community, and uh, just earlier that day, Sue had come across some money in her purse that we had forgot about. It, it, was, it was from, you know, probably a couple months before that, but anyway, she just forgot it was in there. And it wasn't a whole lot of money, uh, but, you know, it, it was a kind of a significant amount. And so when we were made aware of that need, she said, you know what, I think maybe God wants us to use that money to give to them. And we did. We did. And you know, there's just something so emotional about those times when we think beyond ourselves, when we live beyond our own lives, when we, when we sacrifice something of our own selfish needs and desires on behalf of someone else. Now, in, in this case, it wasn't a big financial sacrifice because, again, it wasn't a whole lot of money. But at the same time, it was just one of those things where, you know, we just did something that we felt like the Lord was leading us to do. So what I want you to do, I want you to think back to those generous moments. I want you to think back to some of, the, some of your more selfless days, those days when you could have done something for you, but instead you did something for someone else. You gave up your Saturday morning and came in here and helped with Helping Hands Food Pantry. Or you went to your neighbor's house and, and raked their leaves or cleaned their house or something like that, all right? You gave up time that you were going to spend on you for somebody else. And I want you to just think, as, as you're looking at that empty box, I want you to think about some of those things, that time that you said no to you so you could say yes to somebody else. And then I want you to ask yourself this question. What do you want more of? What do you want more of? You want more memories of all that fun or what you thought was fun at the time? Those things that gave you that temporary thrill but ultimately left you empty and in some cases maybe emotionally wrecked? Is that what you want more of? Do you want more memories of all the money that you've wasted during, during the time you were trying to have all that fun? Is that what you want? Or do you want more memories that bring satisfaction and contentment and fulfillment to your life? Memories that cause you to think, man, that was such a cool experience. Thank you, Jesus, for using me to minister in that situation. What do you want more of? Right? What do you want more of?
Here's the point. Fun is always in the rearview mirror. Even the right kind of fun. Satisfaction, however, is a traveling companion. It sits in the passenger seat every single day of your life. And satisfaction, that, that sense of, you know, this is how I intended life to be. This, this is how I intended our marriage to be, how I intended our family to be. Uh, the, satisfaction is the result of arriving at the destination you intended to arrive at. That's where satisfaction comes. But, and listen up because this is huge, satisfaction is elusive to those who live as if life isn't connected. If you don't think the things from your past impact today and the things you do today impact your future, satisfaction is going to be elusive to you. You know, maybe, just maybe, it's time for a little less fun, but a little more joy, a little more peace, a little more satisfaction. And the path that you choose makes all the difference. Now, for some of you, here's the deal. Uh, you need to make a U-turn. And you know it. You've known it for a while. You just haven't followed through. Some of you maybe need to take a, make a U-turn. And I hope that maybe that silly little box illustration will remind you of that. And how at the end of the path that you're on, you know what you're going to end up with? An empty box. That's it. But you're not going to have any satisfaction. Here's why. You only find satisfaction when you arrive at where you intended to be. See, this is why what Jesus taught was so remarkable. This is why he said things like, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. This is why he said things like, Take my yoke upon you. Why his yoke? He tells us, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you'll do that, if you'll come to him, if you'll accept his invitation to follow me, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find rest. You're going to find satisfaction for your souls. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, you know what, since following Jesus, I have learned the secret of contentment, whether I have a lot or have little. In every single circumstance, I have learned the secret of finding satisfaction is by keeping my eyes on Jesus and following him. That's the invitation of your heavenly father. But it will require of you and it will require of me that we begin living in a different direction because direction, not intention, ultimately determines our destination. So let me ask you, and then we're, then we're done. Let me ask you a couple questions. First, are you living in the wrong direction? Are you living in the wrong direction? Has somebody been trying to warn you and you just think they're trying to take away your fun? But hopefully maybe your heavenly father has spoken to you this morning and assured you, no, son, no, daughter, I'm not trying to take away anything. I'm trying to give you something. Trying to give you more of what life is truly about, a sense of satisfaction. Or does your direction line up with your intention? I, I know what you intend life to be like. You know how you intend life to be like and how you want it to work out. But is your direction lined up with your intention? And if not, would you be willing to consider changing and living in a different direction. Doing is what makes the difference. And the invitation isn't simply to believe something. The invitation is to change the direction that you're living in, and that's what your Heavenly Father has invited you to do.
Look, here's the truth. Following Jesus isn't easy. Not every pastor will say that to you, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Following Jesus isn't always easy. But you know what? Life isn't always easy, is it? Following Jesus isn't always easy, but you know what? Following Jesus is always better. Always better. Because he knows where he's going, and he knows how to get you to where you want to go ultimately. Because he has words of eternal life, and nobody, nobody else is offering you what Jesus is offering you. Bow your heads. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I do pray for those here this morning who've maybe been living in the wrong direction, and and now they realize it. Or maybe they've known it before, but just, just kind of pushed through that, denied it. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give them a sense of urgency right now about the need to change direction so they won't end up like that ox led to the slaughter, like the deer trapped in the snare with the arrow fixing to pierce his heart. And as they look to you, Lord, I pray that you would honor that step of faith and give them grace and courage to make a U-turn and start heading down the path that you have for them. And while your heads are still bowed, if you're here this morning, if you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, it would be my honor to lead you in a prayer where we can take care of that. If you would just pray this simple prayer, just repeat after me, say, Jesus, I realize that I've been walking down the wrong path and I want to begin living my life for you now, Lord. I thank you for dying for me, for my sins. So please forgive me of my sins and come, come live inside of me, inside of my heart, by your Holy Spirit and give me the power and the courage and the strength and the faith to walk the path that you have for me. Today, tomorrow, and for all the days of my life that you've given me. In Jesus' name, amen.